You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. Penny Chris Etherton, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Our topic today is biomarkers and lipidology. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and our guest is Dr. Michael Davidson, clinical professor and director of preventative cardiology at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, and Mike also serves as the chief medical officer for Amthera Pharmaceuticals. Mike, thanks a lot for agreeing to speak with us today on Lip Illuminations. My pleasure, Alan. The topic that I'd like to talk to you about is the publication on biomarkers that was just published in the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. We did do a little bit of discussion at a previous show about the background for that, but if you want to just review how that whole project came together, and then I'll ask you some more pointed questions about what's in the article. Sure. I think that the main purpose of the National Lipid Association Committee to look at this relates to the fact that our member surveys continue to show that there's a lot of interest in biomarkers for cardiovascular risk factors. And so based on these surveys, we decided to conduct an expert panel and we chose among the panel members those that were considered those most knowledgeable about biomarkers, but also clinicians, people that are actually involved in taking care of patients. So we selected the most widely used biomarkers, high-sensitivity CRP, LPPLA2 as inflammatory biomarkers, then lipid parameters, LDL particle number, ApoB, and then LDL and HDL subfractions. And the first stage was to really have a blinded vote of where those experts felt these different biomarkers should be applied in in patients. And uh, once that vote was tallied, then we set up a meeting to discuss these issues in more detail. And the two important questions we asked the panel members were, number one, does this test improve cardiovascular risk prediction? And two, if yes, does it change therapy for that particular patient? And the second part was identify in which patients we want to stratify these type of tests. And we chose four patient types. The first, low risk, really no no risk factors. The second was a pretty broad category, intermediate risk, those with 5 to 20% risk by Framingham or metabolic syndrome. And the third category were those at high risk, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high Framingham score. And the fourth category, which I think was important to include, was those that have a progression of disease despite maximal statin therapy. And we also included another category for those with positive family history of premature heart disease. So those were the overall the five main categories for selecting when these biomarkers are most appropriate. So, Mike, I'm going to take the uh, chair's prerogative here and just uh, since I was involved in this panel and just add one more comment. As you know, we had a healthy discussion about the AHA-ACC commentary that these biomarkers don't add any additional information when evaluating a population compared to traditional risk factors. So the discussion ensued. Why embark on this project at all? And I don't know if you want to comment on it or you want to let me comment on it. One part of it is that the AHA-ACC was only for primary prevention. They didn't specify you know, all the different categories of patients. Now, again, ours were two or three groups could be considered prime prevention, the low-risk, intermediate risk, and the family history category. So it wasn't exactly similar in totality. 
but I thought you were very influential in helping us move it forward in our discussion is that for broad population studies, these tests may not add to what we already know, but for individual patients, they might be quite valuable. And that's what we were trying to focus on. In which type of patient would these tests be most appropriate and helpful? And it's really getting to the more the concept of personalized medicine and trying to apply it to a large group of patients may not be very effective, but for an individual patient that you see in your practice, these tests could potentially be effective. We want to help our members figure out which of those patients are when it comes to the best evidence available at the time. Yeah, I think we all struggled with that dilemma that we want to follow guidelines. We don't want to order unnecessary testing across large populations. And it's probably true that if you do a Framingham score on 1,000 people, you assess their risk quite accurately. And across those 1,000 people doing these additional tests may not add much. But in an individual patient, let's say 50 or 100 of those 1,000, their risk may be underestimated, even though that may not be statistically significant. And so the question we grappled with with each of these risk factors is if there's a difference between their Framingham score and the biomarker risk assessment, which one is most likely to be correct? And I think we all concluded with the biomarkers that we discussed, with certain exceptions, which you'll tell us about, that when there's a difference between the traditional risk scoring and, say, a CRP or an LP little a, that the novel risk factor is more likely to accurately predict the risk than the standard traditional risk factors. So we're going to go on struggling with, you know, if they're expensive, we can't do them on everybody, but we're going to need to use clinical judgment on who we order these additional tests on, just like sometimes we do an angiogram on people with a normal stress test, and there has to be some clinical judgment as to why you might do that, a heightened level of suspicion. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about. And I, I, mean, I think we can all, we all are clinicians, so we have individual examples of patients that we've seen that really don't fit into the guidelines that presently exist and where some of these tests might provide value. We can all give very reasoned judgment about when these tests can be most appropriate. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me to discuss biomarkers and lipidology, as well as the recent publication on biomarkers in the Journal of Clinical Lipidology, is Dr. Michael Davidson, clinical professor and director of preventative cardiology at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. He also serves as consulting chief medical officer for Omthera Pharmaceuticals. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you to kind of outline briefly how the paper reads in terms of how could somebody look at it quickly and get a judgment, and then maybe a discussion of the things that were felt not to be valuable with a little bit of rationale, and then we'll go back and talk about the individual biomarkers that we felt had value and some patient types you might want to order them in. Right. So I think we trying to make it simple. I meant, we mentioned we have these five categories of patients, you know, low risk, intermediate risk, high risk, positive family history, and then progressive disease despite optimal statin therapy. So well, we then went through each biomarker and thought about an initial evaluation of that patient with this biomarker. And then the second part was on treatment, whether you would repeat the test to assess a change in this biomarker with treatment. The one that got the highest rating is um, HSCRP for those that have intermediate risk. And that's because we have an evidence-based study, Jupiter, which showed that when someone does have a uh, intermediate risk or someone has one risk factor plus a HSCRP above two milligrams per liter, 
there's evidence that using a statin improved outcomes in these patients. So that was recommended for routine use in general. And for low risk, we looked at the Jupiter study very carefully, and we, we came to the conclusion that in the low risk patients, there was not value to measuring HSCRP in those patients. And we uh, had a long discussion about that. So we did apply whatever evidence we could for each individual test. So HSCRP was an example of where the evidence-based approach is for intermediate risk. Now, for high-risk patients, those with diabetes or heart disease, we thought there was examples of where it could be valuable, and that would be like, for example, someone with coronary disease who's been maximally treated with the statin, and they continue to have risk factors, and you want to know whether you need to more aggressively manage those risk factors, and an HSCRP could help you determine that situation. That was we consider a lower level of evidence. It was more based on clinical judgment. So we have different categories. One is not recommended at all. The other would be recommended for very selected patients. The third would be recommended for, in general, based on patient criteria. And the fourth was recommended for routine use in that situation. So CRP ran the gamut, but we felt that for the patient with intermediate risk, those with positive family history, one thing in the Jupiter trial you know, thought was shown very clearly was you know, someone with a positive family history and high HSCRP, the relative risk reduction in that patient group was about 75%. I mean, a very powerful effect in, with resuvastatin in, in that trial. Now, regarding ApoB and LDL particle number for initial assessment, again, the intermediate risk and the uh, heart disease and diabetes patients, a robust discussion because in those patients you frequently see we call discordance, in which the, the LDL cholesterol can look great, normal, low even. The LDL particle number, ApoB, is, is very abnormal. And we're convinced by the MESA trial uh, that recently has been reporting out that in those type of studies, the ApoB and LDL particle number do predict risk better than the LDL cholesterol value. And so for selecting patients based on those type of parameters was helpful in, in, in picking out the more discordant population for low risk, we didn't find any value for doing the advanced um, LDL particle number, ApoB. And for, for all the subfraction analysis, we found uh, no justification for looking at LDL subfractions or HDL subfractions as a way to better predict risk. Just the data was not, not available to support the uh, use of any of those tests. I mean, I think you, you get them automatically in some of these tests, so you have it anyway, but we couldn't justify any rationale for those tests being utilized for any of these parameters. LP little a example was we thought for family history it was quite valuable for initial assessment, which is consistent with the European Atherosclerosis Society and the European Society of Cardiology recommendations to do more widespread LP little a screening for those that do have family history for heart disease. And for those that have recurrent disease despite optimal stand therapy, we thought a lot of these tests should be applied in certain patients because you want to help the patient as best you can. Again, the evidence for benefit is, is relatively limited, but we know that these tests can pick up additional risk factors that we can either intensify risk management in general, consider other drug therapy, intensify lifestyle changes that might be more effective. And so these tests can be quite valuable in picking up residual risk that the patient still has despite being on, on optimal statin therapy. So that ran the gamut. And LPPLA2, we felt was only really useful in that intermediate risk patient in certain circumstances, but otherwise didn't really have value in most other type of patient settings. 
as an inflammatory biomarker. So I think that the paper is, we wanted to make it very clinically useful, and it reads relatively very quickly. It's chock full of, I think, useful information. We have a color coding system where green is green light, go ahead. Blue is limited to certain patients. Yellow is less regularly advised, and then red is do not order. So the color coding system does help, I think, look at it from a chart perspective, see where these different patient types can be most widely applied in practice. So, Michael, you mentioned that looking at LDL subfractions or particle sizes as well as HDL subfractions was not recommended, and we know that a lot of people feel very strongly about that test. Is it because if you have a measure of particle number that those tests don't seem to add any additional risk assessment? In other words, if that's the only test that you have, is it valuable, or are we better off with just the non-HDL? Or apobiraldial particle number. So um, as you know, there's multiple ways to do these tests. As a consensus of experts, what you do in your own practice, you might choose to do differently. So I don't want to say it's not appropriate or wrong to do something like that. But what we wrestled with was that once you correct for ApoB or LDL particle number and you have an LDL subfractions and you have HDL subfractions, does those tests still predict risk over and above someone has already has a low ApoB or a low particle number? And we really couldn't have any evidence that they did. I mean, I think we have examples that we see clinically. You know, I think you and I can both remember having many examples of somebody has a good LDL particle number and a good ApoB, but has you know, maybe a lot of small-dense LDL or has a pattern of small-dense LDL, high LDL 3 or 4, or has a lot of small LDL on an Athertech VAP test or something like that, that those type of measurements still worry you. And you see these patients and you think about those other issues with that patient, and especially if they have recurrent disease, despite optimal therapy, you try to look at things that might affect those different parameters. I don't think they're without value, but at this point, we couldn't point to a study and say when your LDL particle number is good and your ApoB is good and these other tests are not where they should be, does changing these tests anyway affect outcomes? We, we really couldn't have that evidence available to us that will put that into the category where it, we, we think it could be recommended in certain patients. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Michael Davidson, clinical professor and director of preventative cardiology at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, as well as consulting chief medical officer for Amthera Pharmaceuticals. Thank you, Alice. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.